Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome one and all to A More Perfect Union. I'm Peter Jay, along with Nick Remesong. Nick, good morning. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm doing splendiferously. Uh, I needed to use a polysyllabic word to sum it up this morning. And an Just, adverb at that. They're, they're, yes, exactly. I know. Thank you for <laughs> noticing. <laughs> anyway, uh, that aside, we have a topic that I'm going to put on the table. I'm going to seed the clouds, if you will with uh, a discussion about insurrection. Ooh, insurrection, there's a big word. And where we are as a nation at this point, and unfortunately it is very much a part of our lexicon now. That said, uh, where does it come from? Where did it start? And that goes back a long way. And that's what we're gonna take a look at. What is probably a 30 to 40 year prequel to all of the events that we've witnessed in this last decade and more recently. So as a country, where are we going economically, politically, and so on? Now, we're recording this on Thursday morning. And of course, this evening, there is going to be the grand unveiling of the January 6th committee in prime time on Thursday evening. And so uh, we can only surmise what they're going to discuss. And by the time you're listening to this, perhaps you'll be one prime time evenings smarter on exactly what the January 6th committee has been all about. That said, we take a look back, and I'm gonna go all the way back to the 1980s. Prior to the 1980s, the Secretary of the Treasury, Robert Reich, made an interesting observation. And it was that there was this relationship between business, big business particularly, and the American worker. We remember scenes of manufacturing, people going to work, the start of the day, end of the day, and lunch whistles, people getting out their lunch pails, and the middle class was talked about in very robust style. And as productivity went up over a period of several decades, people made more money and the American way of life progressed. Things got better and better and better. And in 1980, something changed. There are a number of forces that kicked in and all rather abruptly. In 1980, going forward, if you were to look at Robert Reich's graph, the American workers' income and also the productivity and the profits of corporations all moved in lockstep. Uh, it was a very wonderful relationship where everybody was benefiting. And many corporations, by the way, used to tout that in their quarterly reports, uh, what their relationships were with the factory workers and so on. Uh, and then in 1980, suddenly, American incomes flatlined. Profits still kept going up, going up all through the 80s and 90s, but wages were suddenly flatlined. The patron saint of this phenomenon is a gentleman named 
right here in Milton, Massachusetts is where I grew up, Neutron Jack Welch. Jack Welch was a CEO at GE who very much believed that if you couldn't be number one or number two, you didn't deserve to be in that business. And he was going to find a way to do that for all of the divisions of GE, which by the way, also included uh, minimizing staffs. That's why it was known as Neutron Jack, because all the people were gone and the buildings were still standing. And that said, he, his techniques were adopted by many other corporations. Uh, and that became the new law of the land, profit at all costs, profit by all means necessary. And the decades long arrangement between American workers, notably union workers and corporations started to come apart. Uh, in the background, technology was also playing a role. We were beginning to offshore work, move it to other countries. We were also beginning to see the rise of long lines, communications and further offshoring of what gradually became an information society. And again, the forces kept on expanding with respect to the ability to reward workers for reasonable work. The reasonable reward no notion started becoming less and less so. So that is a backdrop that I think has generally introduced a certain amount of pain. The American worker, it's much tougher now to get ahead. The middle class has actually been reduced by an estimated upwards of 12% by whatever definition you use for the middle class. And so that pain and the anger associated with it needs a place to go. It needs some form of release. And that is, I think, one of the root causes between, uh, behind what we've seen uh, in these recent years with uh, anger, talk of insurrection, uh, people, uh, joining groups like Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, and they're looking for answers that they cannot find. And I don't know where all of this is going, but I have a have a grave concern, not about what happened on January 6th. We know what that was about. That's becoming part of history, which we'll know more and more about. My real concern is that that was a dress rehearsal. Thoughts? I see that also, obviously. I mean, there's a, say what you will about the nature of Proud Boys, Oath Keepers. Um, I think more importantly behind all of this is a grassroots, just a feeling of having been cut off. Alienated. Populism. Populism, yes. Having been completely cut off, you have no access to, in order to, to, to better yourself, to grow, because the emphasis is on CEOs. It's on profit. It's on obscene. It's on excess profit. Let's put it that way. Excessive profit, 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 uh, merely for the sake of profit. Mm. And I think that it's, it's coming up. I mean, I remember as a kid living in California, there were, were always the stories of, uh, the group, the Minutemen out in the desert training mm -hmm. to take over this country. And they never really, it didn't materialize. You were always aware of them. They were always there. Uh, a lot of that might have been a little less uh, alienation and less uh, populism as it than just wanting to be out in the desert, running around with your friends with guns. But I think that this is something that's going to spring up and continue springing up, and it will it'll swell, and something's got to break. It speaks to the notion that each in their own way, right or wrong, people are looking for something better and just not finding it. And to the extent that we're able to provide answers, particularly in a Congress that seems at this point 
to be increasingly deadlocked. I don't know what is possible. And what happened on January 6th with respect to their responses, how they were all brought back in line only days after the event. And and then more recently, uh, even though there are negotiations going on uh, with respect to gun control, my concern is that those negotiations will slog on to the point of irrelevance and and the area of agreement will just get thinner and thinner and thinner. There's an interesting statistic as well, uh, which um, I'll bring up. The average CEO's income right now is approximately, it's above 300x the average worker. It's grown tremendously uh, in recent decades. And so uh, in keeping in line with profits being the thing that every business strives for, uh, by all means, the CEOs that can produce profits, be they short-term, whatever, are the ones that get rewarded. And so there's a big incentive there, um, less so uh, for the workers. And I play that against a, a project that I did some years ago uh, in Washington with a think tank. And I've mentioned this probably in the past, but they noted in studying the governments of many countries that historically, when the difference between the average income and the top one to two percent expands beyond, when that difference expands beyond 10x, the government becomes unstable. The institutions begin to become unstable. Uh, and at this point, clearly, we are way beyond 10x. Now, their presentation of it at that time when they had this discussion, which would have been in the 90s, they noted that here in the U.S., the vote was the form of revolution that was available to provide some type of mediation against that inequity. That is, if people didn't like what was going on, if they felt unrest, if there was, in fact, the need to make a big change, that change came through the ballot box you know, every two to four years. But in these recent decades, we have not seen that manifesting itself. Uh, and so now the frustration is no matter which party is in power, nothing seems to happen. And that, I think, gives rise to the populism that we're seeing, the thing that got named as the Tea Party, that ultimately, I remember the Tea Party, you know, nobody talks about them anymore, but they're one of the, one of the clear manifestations of what has been brewing since. And so love to investigate what the cure might be. And I don't know what that is. Well, before we get to the cure, let me contribute a little bit more, Peter, to the symptoms. Sure. In the 1980s, a number of things happened that we did not pay attention to. Reaganomics uh, became the sort of mainstay, which is this idea that if we reduced taxes on those who produce uh, wealth, then the largesse of those folks will trickle down to the rest of us. Uh, and that included corporations. The other thing that happened is the final nail put in the coffin of what at the time was a 40 year effort to overdo or overturn rather, uh, the new deal, mm. which, uh, again, was an effort to help sustain, uh, fortify, and build the middle class. And in that overturning, uh, 
the final nail was the idea that the people ought to pay more in terms of taxes. Again, one of the Reaganomic uh, platforms and principles, not corporations, but people. That is, the people ought to pay for the services that they get. And you remember the phrase, pay as you go, which mm -hmm. started to open up the concept of things like, why don't we have more toll roads? The people who use the toll roads ought to, you, you know, ought to pay for them. And the one downfall of that was the trucking industry, uh, which fought back hard. And so quietly, the taxes were raised in the trucking industry, uh, but not tolls in terms of the interstate. Uh, on the common folks, gas prices started to go up primarily because of the increase in both state and federal taxes on gas. The next little indicator was the idea in terms of the tax shift. Do you recall, well, some of us who are older recall that back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, if you had a credit card at 4 or 5% interest, the interest on that credit card at the end of the year, if you uh, itemized your deductions, was a deduction. That is that if, let's say, I paid uh, $700 in interest on all of my credit uh, that I accumulated from banks and other sources, then that $700 was deductible on my taxes. Reaganomics, again, took that away. The other major piece, and I say this as an educator, that there was an entire treatise written by one of the, uh, and I forget his name, uh, by one of the Reagan advisors prior to his even deciding to uh, finally decide to run for president, which said the first thing you need to do if we're going to push our economic and social policies is to attack the teachers. And the best way to do that is through attacking the National Education Association and the Mayor Confederation of Teachers, because they are the most organized labor or group in this United States, because they're in every congressional district. So we need to put them back on their heels by throwing in some punches. Uh, and if you recall, that was when this human, uh, humanistic education attack started under the Reagan administration. Um, and it was, well, your school may be okay, but your teacher unions are not. Uh, teachers are fine, but the union is the big bear uh, that's destroying your kids because they're uh, unculcating your teachers into teaching your kids humanistic edu uh, humanistic education. Now, let's, let's slowly move through the decades of the 80s. And suddenly, here we are. We are the most weaponized, individually weaponized uh, country in the United States. And there's a reason for that. Uh, in the black community, uh, the gun ownership of the black community has increased over 500% in just the last 10 years. The idea that all of us have access to jobs has now taken root that 
well, the people who want to work are working. And then you also look at what the statistic that you said, and I think it's over a thousand percent now in terms of the a thousand times more uh, in terms of the CEO pay as opposed to the worker in any individual factory. Yeah, they're talking typically 350x. Uh, and there are some stats that do go higher. Uh, so when you, you look at that, what does that bring us to? And especially the shrinking in the middle class, it brings us to a place where people are running to the false prophets. Uh, Jim Jordan, for example, out of Ohio, is one of the Tea Party folks. And a great uh, dog whistle generator. And Ronald, uh, not Ronald Reagan, but uh, our previous president, uh, the great huckster that he is, took advantage of the fact that not only is there the Tea Party perspective, but this, these, these grievances and frustrations that are out there that now have demonstrated themselves in that we're tired of this. Uh, and then the dog whistle that, well, the Republicans are the ones who are going to fight for you and you need to join us. So the old Republican Party, one of, uh, for good or bad, that was based on economics, uh, pro-business, uh, international relations, crush Russia, uh, defense. You, you know, strong defense. Uh, uh, and actually, the Republican Party was not the uh, sort of purveyor, if you will, originally of some of these social issues, but now have taken on some of the social issues, too. And the Democrats, when they had power uh, for the few years between uh, the 1980s and now, did not address the major issues of the middle class when they had the opportunity. And here's my last case in point. In the Obama administration, one of the first sets of, uh, let's say, pro-labor laws that have ever come before the House and Senate in decades were sitting on the table and with a clear majority in the House and the Senate uh, Obama's administration decided to put that in the middle burner, leave that until we finish this concept of health care for all. And the point that I want to make here is that rather than go at making the or providing the opening for workers, a clear majority so that they could better organize, they put those laws on uh those perspective laws on whole in order to get uh, the health care laws and lost the opportunity then to pass those laws because it was right after the midterms when the Democrats basically lost control. Uh, they got their health care through, but nothing came through anymore for the rest of his term or his second term to really sort of crystallize, we are the party of the people, uh, which I think also contributed to the sort of turning on Hillary Clinton in the next, uh, uh, after his eight-year term was over. You know, Michael, I, I'd love to pick up on one piece that uh, I think is important in the context. You gave a laundry list of items that uh, 
shifted the tax burden to um, other folks, uh, the middle class primarily, and that's on the uh, issue of student loans. So back in uh, the 1980s, and I graduated uh, in 1986, and at the time, uh, there were two things you could do with student loans. Like you talked about other loans, the interest was deductible uh, on your federal tax return. But the other significant, so they took away that right to deduct student loan interest back uh, in 1986. Second thing was that they made student loan debt non-dischargeable in bankruptcy. And you jump ahead 30 35 years, and we have probably one of the biggest student uh, debt crises uh, in the history of the United States. And what are they talking about doing? They're talking about uh, eliminating student loan debt. Uh, and despite the fact I brought it up with a congressman and said, you know, if you really want to address student loan debt, why don't you reverse the policies that you implemented in the 1980s? make the interest deductible. And if somebody is uh, truly struggling, which is what the bankruptcy laws are designed to protect, allow these people to discharge those debts in bankruptcy. Uh, it seems quite logical to me that that's the answer uh, to that particular crisis. I have some other ideas that uh, we have implemented on the state level to address student loan debt, but that's a federal issue uh, and crisis that was uh, that uh, was developed during the 1980s in exactly the time frame that we have set as the context for the beginning of this. Now, uh, it is interesting that in this context, once again, we are turning to the states to try to rectify income inequality, which is at an all-time high. We're, we're back, we're even in worse shape than we were back in the Gilded Age in the late 1800s. So one thing that the uh, Massachusetts legislature uh, is attempting to do is to make a constitutional uh, amendment to allow us to uh, implement a tax uh, on those earning in excess of a million dollars. It's called the Fair Share Amendment. Uh, I've been in the legislature now for 10 years. I have voted on this four times. So in order to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot, it has to be voted on in two successive sessions of the, the Great and General Court. Uh, we did it uh, in my second and third term, and uh, a lawsuit was filed, went to the Supreme Judicial Court, and uh, the Supreme Judicial Court ruled that the amendment we were proposing uh, was unconstitutional, so we would have to start the process all over again. We started the process all over again. I have voted in two subsequent sessions of the legislature. The ballot question is slated to be on the ballot in November of 2022, but I will share with you that yet again, a lawsuit has been filed to prevent that question from getting on the ballot. And the question is, to the people themselves as to whether or not somebody who is earning more than a million dollars ought to pay an additional 4% in income tax. Now keep in mind, it's 
only 4% of the dollars that you earn excess, in excess of a million dollars. And uh, I hear people say, well, that's a horrible tax. It's a horrible idea. And I keep going back to myself saying, if you look at the tax payments that are made by people, the real burden is on those who are in the middle class. They're paying a higher percentage of their income in income taxes than those who are earning 350 or 1,000 times what the average uh, worker in a company makes. And I say to folks, how much is too much? You tell me that uh, somebody who earns over a million dollars cannot afford to pay an extra 4% on those dollars over a million. It's just striking to me that we uh, have this conversation, but we are having this conversation. The people will have a chance to uh, weigh in on this. And I can assure you that between now and November, the airwaves are gonna be flooded with uh, uh, threats of fear and uh, how that this will somehow disturb the economy. And in fact, it's gonna bring more balance uh, to our economy. It's, it should root out some of uh, the evil that has developed through some of these policies going back to the 1980s. And then my final point is uh, where we've seen failure on the federal level, uh, there has been action by the state legislatures throughout the country to address those issues that our United States Congress simply refuses to take on. I talk about climate change, uh, talk about some of the uh, economic issues, I talk about crime, I talk about education. These are issues that uh, you know the federal government used to do a lot in, but we have a dysfunctional Congress, and therefore much of that work has been turned over to the states. Uh, you know, gun control, I think we had an off-the-record conversation uh, before the show started today. There's a perfect example. The federal government has absolutely failed on this issue. And the Commonwealth of Massachusetts has done uh, some great work in this issue. We have a, a low gun violence rate. And uh, just a few days ago, uh, we as members of the uh, Great and General Court here in Massachusetts sent a letter to every capital in the United States of America saying, this is what we have done on this issue. Your federal government is failing you, but you as a state can take these steps to protect your citizens, to protect your children, to protect against uh, gun violence. So um, those are my three uh, takeaways uh, from this discussion. I think they offer some solutions as to uh, what we can do. And, you know, the solutions are for particular segments of the problems that have been identified here, but you have to start somewhere. And uh, I throw those out and I'll sit back and I'm anxious to hear what others have to say. I want to jump in, Jeff, and, and thank you, importantly, on the Fair Wage Act. I mean, I think that is, in my mind, so clear that with growing income inequality, we need to address that head on. Uh, I also want to add that income inequality is what we're talking about, but wealth inequality is even greater in this country. And wealth inequality means, you know, what you're inheriting from your parents. And, you know, the historical understanding of wealth inequality is where we see groups, especially uh, Black Americans, faring much, much worse because of the structural racism that has, you know, allowed for wealth not to accumulate in one group. So, you know, I, I do think the wealth inequality piece, which may require a more radical 
political form of reparations um, is more politically difficult. But I'm excited that we're starting with the income inequality piece and, and taking it head on. But my concern is kind of going back to what Michael was talking about, about organizing and the attack on organizing among working class or poor people. And, you know, Pete, you asked, what is the solution? So I don't have an answer, but I personally am going to the march that Reverend Barber is organizing. It's called the Mass Poor Peoples and Low Wage Workers Assembly and Moral March on Washington. It's happening on June 18th in DC. And the hope there is to bring together political power among a group, poor people, who actually make a huge portion of our country, but simply do not have a political voice. So, you know, according to the Poor People's Campaign, there are 140 million people who are either living in poverty or one emergency away from poverty. And the emergencies we're talking about are like health issues. You know, you have, you're diagnosed with cancer and you suddenly have to spend your entire savings on, on treatment. You know, my father-in-law's life-saving medication costs thousands of dollars every month. And, you know, it took months to try and get him. He is, you know, has retired. He is low income. You know, he doesn't have, and just to try and get that life-saving medication, he waited several months without accessing it. And it's like, why is our country, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, allowing people to go bankrupt because of, of healthcare costs? Why are we allowing for you know, a flood or some other emergency to push you from barely living to, to struggling and living in poverty? And obviously COVID has made that worse. So you know, I do think that political organizing is important. And whether this is the conversation that we want to have today, the revolution, the moral revolution that I think Reverend Barber is trying to build that brings faith leaders, but also it's not one um, ethnic, racial, religious group. It is really uh, saying, you know, half our population needs this is one step forward. And, you know, to what Jeff said that we have so many challenges ahead, they talk about the interlocking injustices of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, and the denial of healthcare, militarism, and the war economy. So, you know, he, they're trying to sort of thread a needle across those. I do think that too often people focus on one issue that they care about, but they're interconnected. Um, I have some hope, as I've said in previous uh, episodes, among, that our youth are able to talk about ecological devastation in the same breath as they talk about wealth inequality, in the same breath that they you know, fight for student loan forgiveness. And I know the term forgiveness is also controversial because there's nothing to forgive. Nobody did anything wrong. Our government, as, as Jeff said, you know, changed the rules and, and made it so much harder for people to, to get the education they deserve. So I think organizing and political organizing at the grassroots is critical. I also think from the top down, we need to change the way that politics are, you know, and politicians are swayed by money. I, I ran for office and Jeff, you can speak to this more. The fact that a candidate has to spend the majority of their time making phone calls to fundraise, not sharing their ideas, their policies, not not talking about what their values are, not talking to the people who are voting, but actually to the very few people who can donate at the max is really a problem. That creates an incentive for politicians to care about those, that 1% in an outsized number, not about the 20% who can't donate, but actually, uh, you know, are an important base. So I think there are many conversations that we can have but I do think that political power to the poor and organizing, whether it's through labor unions or other organizing, is possibly one way forward. Natalia, that obligation to raise money uh, as a congressperson would not have ended with you winning the election. Uh, many congresspersons spend their first few terms 
building up bank accounts and building and, and making fundraising calls uh, across the street from uh, the uh, Capitol building, sitting in a cubicle, just making calls for hours every day, raising funds to ward off a challenger in the next race. I can tell you it uh, was one of those things that made that uh, particular position unattractive to me as, as one who uh, you know, briefly thought about it. Um, and one of the differences between raising money on the federal level versus raising money on the state level so a federal candidate can collect, I believe it's something on the order of close to $3,000 for, from an individual and, uh, you know, pack money uh, in substantial thousands of dollars. In Massachusetts, a candidate can only accept up to $200 from a lobbyist. That's two zero zero. That's a fraction of what a federal candidate can collect from lobbyists. Uh, individuals can donate up to $1,000 uh, to a candidate at the state level. So it's a totally different ball game in terms of the structure. There's less incentive for me as a state candidate uh, to be, I, incentive is the wrong word. I, 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 there's a less of an opportunity to be for me to be influenced by outside money because it's it's such a small level um, and uh, you know I neglected to say when I spoke the first time uh, I want to give uh, bring greetings from Copenhagen uh, which is where I'm uh, uh, broadcasting from uh, this afternoon and uh, it's part of the the job that I have is I come and I look uh, at what's happening in other states and. And in this case, I happen to be here uh, in uh, Denmark looking at their energy and renewable uh, portfolio, windmills and all of the steps that they're taking to um, go to net zero. So it's a it's a fantastic opportunity to learn the best practices from from other states and other countries. And I know that Michael is consistently traveling throughout the United States. And I I believe Chris was. Uh, uh, at a journey uh, outside of the country recently. So, you know, these are types of things that uh, when we're looking for solutions, uh, we don't stop at the borders uh, of Massachusetts. We look uh, everywhere. So those are my greetings from uh, Copenhagen in Denmark and uh, look forward to more conversation today. My regards to the Queen. Yes, my grief. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's funny you bring up the, well, not funny at all, but uh, the, the uh, advantages of travel. I mean, that's what the Fulbright Scholarship was established for, was to broaden outlook and horizons of Americans who we, as a country, tend to travel for pleasure only. Uh, and we remain a bit insular in the, in, in the way that many people don't leave, never leave their native state, the state where they grew up in, born, wherever. They don't even travel to other states. That's just that's too uh, that's an odd thing to them so i mean we do have things in play for that sort of thing but i mean not everyone qualifies for a fulbright scholarship but there are aspects of travel that could be more geared more along the lines of an exchange of ideas and an exchange of cultures and to address just very briefly the the concept of uh, the diminution of the power and the the importance of labor unions i mean pete uh, Michael and I 
all came up in an era when unions were very strong. You had people like uh, uh, Walter Ruther and George Meany. We knew those names. The AFL-CIO, everyone knew what that was. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the American Football League. Uh, and I don't think anyone really knows what they are today. They've never heard of the these names. Not that we need to deify, because I, mean, I think that's part of the problem. We are deifying CEOs. And from a publishing standpoint, that all started with um, Lee Iacocca's uh, biography, yeah. autobiography. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he mm-hmm. was all of a sudden we've got this businessman and he's a hero. And it, that that book was the biggest bestseller of that time. Just kept it. It would not go to paperback. They wouldn't put it in paperback because they were making too much money make in the hardcover. The paperback was delayed three or four times, mm. which is a, a very small bit of what actually started to happen but but a big part of that is the deification of celebrity i think celebrity mm-hmm. cooks the i'm not going to grab right any particular family but we know who they are and it's this and we have celebrity we have celebrity politicians and presidents oh, yes yes we do we do mm-hmm. indeed mm-hmm. who started out as celebrities and that was their only qualification but and just again to touch briefly again on another topic the middle class Yes, the middle class was very strong when I was a, a young man. And when I was a kid, that was where you were. My, my family was established firmly in the middle class. But I think the middle class at that time missed an opportunity to assist in bringing up those who were attempting to come into the middle class. The slums and the devastation that I remember when I lived in Florida, you would travel to the state capital in the 60s, Tallahassee. The state capitol had a beautiful Broadway that led up to the state capitol. Both sides were lined with shacks. That's where the people had to live. Hmm. They had to live there, and that's where they were. And, I mean, the Harlem, of course, was not the vibrant commercial center that it is now, and there's still oppressive poverty there. Uh, but we missed, we being the middle class, white middle class, missed the opportunity of making a greater attempt to bring up those black, white, brown, and yellow, who were coming up behind us. I have, uh, you know, we've talked about a number of issues that led us up to the conditions that we face today. Um, and I, I would like at this point to shift over and recommend a solution. And it is a solution that I believe will never be. But let me put it forward. We talk about Citizens United and the fact that, you know, the way that Politicians have to raise money all the time, especially at the national level where they're constantly fundraising. I would now, I know that on the federal income tax form, there's a little checkoff box where you can toss a dollar into the kitty, you know, for uh, election support. It's not enough, but it's a clue. I would contend that people who are in political office, both at the state and the national level, are not nearly paid well enough for what they do for representing the people. Jeff, I'm giving you a raise. <laughs> anyway, my, my point being. Hey, do not get me in trouble. I tell people that it was you that said it. My goodness gracious. I, I took so much heat the last time we voted on a pay raise. I, I don't ever want to face one of those votes again for the, and, the rest and of the And therein lies, therein lies the problem. We, as members of the public, are horrible bosses. We don't understand the worth of the workers that we have in political office. Consider, if you will, an alternate reality where the American people reward 
the good works of dedicated politicians at the national level handsomely enough and fund all of the election costs. Let me underscore the word all, all of the election costs such that there's no need to fundraise and 100% of your time can be dedicated to actually doing your job and the interest that you would have as a politician for accepting outside funds. Now, I don't, I don't say that we can't uh, accept outside funds because you know, there is a First Amendment and there is the ability for people to donate to causes and people that they believe in. But if there was a baseline, you wanna talk about universal basic income? Let's talk about universal basic support for people running for office. Not, by the way, not just the incumbents, but also people looking to run who raise enough signatures to say, I'm a viable candidate. And once proven as a viable candidate uh, at the state and the national level, they would be supported by the national election fund. A national election fund would bring a sharp, sharp focus to the issues of the people because politicians would now be somewhat inoculated from the pressures that they feel from the various lobbies. And we would be able to actually move forward on a number of key issues. Maybe not all of them, but on a number of them would be able to unlock the tensions that exist on the left and the right. And Pete, uh, you should never know that uh, one of our governor candidates in Massachusetts announced either yesterday or the day before that, that he is actually going to be running his campaign on public funds uh, uh, because he's unable to raise money on his own. And that would be uh, the Republican nominee, even though he was give, granted the uh, um, uh, nomination at his convention is mm-hmm. uh, only got $63,000 in his campaign account. So uh, he's forced into the position of accepting public funding. How ironic that it would be the Trump Republican candidate running for governor in Massachusetts is the one who's running it on public funds. I thought it was the most ironic and almost laughable thing I had heard in uh, in years of uh, being involved in these campaigns. But exactly, that's and, that's the truth. But yeah, I do I know it. that New York City, for example, does have a matching public kind of campaign finance program. So if you get small donations from a New York City resident, you're running for local elections, then New York City will match it. So if you um, and it's like eight to one, you can get up to $2,000. I have to look at the system, but that does allow people in New York City to run for office and say their community is not, you know, there's such inequality in New York City. So say you come from a poor community and your neighbors all want to support you, but they can support you only at the $10 or $20. The city itself will do a match so that you're not disadvantaged simply because you are representing a, a poor community or you come from, you know, unfortunately, our networks are what allow us to you know raise a hundred thousand versus ten thousand and that means that people who have those networks a hundred thousand most likely themselves wealthy um, are more likely to be elected even though they are not representative of the community so i do like that new york city has that campaign finance program i, I don't know if massachusetts boston or other places would consider something like that so pete it's not completely outrageous what you're talking about i think it would be a great idea and, and not think- only is it not outrageous uh, but at the same time, Pete, let's admit too that it's very complex because 
because as soon as you start talking about, and you even mentioned it in, uh, uh, as part of your solution, it helps us in terms of the left and the right. Well, unfortunately, that I believe, and I've said that many times before uh, in our discussions, part of what we're running up against is this uh, black and white, these black and white choices that we think we have to make. In other words, there's Democrats and Republicans. We need more parties. We need more ideas. And, and, and let me sort of, uh, again, substitute parties for ideas. We need more ideas. We need more people who are willing to serve in public office and bring to that office uh, not only their intellect and their experiences, but an opportunity for them to share with the rest of us their ideas. And then those are the folks that we ought to gravitate toward in terms of looking to uh, to elect. But that's not what campaign finance typically uh, uh, gets designed to do. It gets designed to help just sustain the status quo. And so therein, Pete, lies part of why it's not happening. Republicans and Democrats both will protect their own self-interest as parties by not allowing um, a fund the funding of some candidate who comes and calls himself a labor or herself a labor party candidate uh, with issues addressing let's say uh, you, you know the working class folks in this country so i'm I'm very hopeful of two things one I'm very hopeful that within our population we have folks who can uh, discern solutions. They can do it. But I'm not sure that that we can do that simply based upon the status quo. And the second thing that I'm very hopeful about is that our experiment, uh, young people are beginning to delve into the complexities and the details of it. And at some point when they start to say, okay, you know, here's what we need to do around gun control. And as Natalia mentioned, uh, and at the same time, here's what we need to do in terms of climate control or uh, uh, saving uh, our energy grid or to help in terms of the wealth gap. Uh, you know, I do want to throw out this one statistic uh, so that we don't get too far along thinking that Massachusetts is way above this. And you brought this up, Jeff, and, you know, I think it's a great piece and Natalia as well around the wealth gap in Massachusetts, the average wealth of white families in Massachusetts, that is the ability to be able to pass on uh, the accumulated wealth of that family is around $247,000, I believe. And the average wealth uh, of a black family in this state is $8. You heard me correct. Eight point zero eight dollars. Now, that gap is an abomination, but it's here. It's real. And what are some of the solutions? I think uh, Natalia said it. But this is what adds to the frustration of people, too, when they look at government and say, well, what's government helping me to do? And if government won't help me, well, maybe I'll start some self-help here. Exactly. And I think that uh, it's an interesting point also to consider that there are people out there, uh, pundits, that take advantage of that pain. That is, we've seen the rise of right-wing radio, 
It's it, very interesting. Back in, I'm going to go all the way back to the 60s. Here in Boston in the 60s, there was a late night commentator, Jerry Williams, on WMEX. And I actually worked there as a youngin. And I remember talking to Jerry about it. And he said, all I got to do is get him angry. Angry makes the phone ring. You know, I've got a call in show and I want to have a spirited conversation. And the way to do that is every night, pick up the newspaper, start thumbing through the newspaper about some local story, wax eloquent about why we've been wrong. The phone lights up and off we go on our show. Plain and simple. Now, that recipe, Jerry Williams, the dean of late night talk radio at that time, sort of cast a template, if you will, for those to come afterwards. Polemicists, brilliant polemicists, quite frankly, like Rush Limbaugh, who owned the airwaves for how long? And uh, also, too, uh, the uniting of Rupert and Roger. That was a big moment with the birth of Fox News. And, and you know, to be fair, this goes all the way back to Samuel Gompers. And uh, in his own way, he was a polemicist as well and believed in a free press. Uh, and the free press invites everything into its tent. But unfortunately, we need to have a more educated and more reasoned society to temper that. Donald Trump summed it very well. I love the uneducated. Yeah. And, and all, of these all of these people understood one thing. The opposite of passion is not hate. It's indifference. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they foment passion and convert it into hate. And so we have a very angry society now, aimlessly angry, aimlessly angry. And they need to be directed by those in power for their own self-aggrandizement. And that is one of the backdrops that needs to be addressed. Yeah, the, the, the demagoguery that is going on now is, I mean, it's, it, it harkens back many, many years. I mean, obviously, uh, the one I remember the most, well, not remember personally, was Huey Long. I mean, once described as the most uh, dangerous man in America. And he was, he knew how to work a crowd, and his crowd was the working class and the poor in Louisiana. Now, differences between him and a recent uh, national administration, he actually did some good for the poor and the disenfranchised in Louisiana in his seven years, basically, of, of, of controlling that state. I mean, he, he ran it like a fiefdom. There's no two ways mm -hmm. about it. Right. But he actually did some good. He took on Standard Oil and got a lot of money out of them that they were not giving. And he spread it around, spread the wealth, every man a king. Uh, but it was demagoguery. It was get to the com the lowest common denominator and you're going to you're going to sweep them you're going to take care of things you're going to foment insurrection which is mm -hmm. what is happening now on a very broad range and the quote you gave from Donald Trump I love the uneducated unfortunately a lot of the people that he spoke of as an uneducated said well he loves us no he loves the fact that you're uneducated i don't right. think they grasp that point but that that and that's that can be taken as a somewhat, uh, you know, self-serving attitude on my part. So I, I set that aside. But I think that really this is what's going on. You're coming at the, it's like the National Front in England uh, years ago. They got the skinheads involved in it, but the National Front was not run by the skinheads. Mm. And it was not run by the disenfranchised and the poor from Croydon and other 
inner city sub inner city slums. It was run by men of power, men of money. They used it to get in. So that's something that I have, you know, been mulling on for years now is the fact that this is what's happening. People are being, uh, they're appealing to fear, a great deal of fear, a great deal of poverty, a great deal of anxiety, and just a, a, a feeling that we don't know where we're going and we have no one at the at leading us. Congress is not doing it. My great fear is, as I said in the beginning, what we saw on January 6th might prove to be a dress rehearsal. That gets me nervous. I'm not, I don't want to be doom and gloom, and that's not where I want to go with this. But there is one potential future out there that does concern me, unless we all cast smart votes, that trying to consider what a second term in office might look like for the former president, I would think on day one, he would be focused on finding a way to make his residency at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue more permanent. And that would be by all means necessary. Yes. And out and out revenge. Yes. He's going to take, he's going to take names. He's got the names and he'll take revenge. The revenge tour. And and let me throw out uh, as part of my uh, 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 sort of closing salvo for, uh, for my fellow panelists here, two books that I clearly uh, recommend to our listeners. One of them is called uh, the coming jobs war. It's by Jim Clifton, and Jim Clifton happens to be the CEO of the Gallup Corporation. Uh, And the other is The Great Reset by Richard Florida. These two books basically uh, outline what the future holds if we let these demagogues continue to prey upon those who are not just uneducated, but those who are looking for a better life legitimately and don't see uh, the current party system helping them or the current governmental structure at the federal and state levels helping them or really sort of providing them with a vision of the future where they can have a job and raise a family on a living wage. As a matter of fact, Clifton's book does this based upon surveys that they do every year worldwide. And it comes down to this. There are basically three things that people on this planet want. They want to be able to have a job with a living wage and sustain themselves and their family. Second, they want to have a life where they don't feel as though they're being taken advantage of or someone or some person uh, is ripping them off. And then third, they want to be able to pass on to their kids a life equal to or better than the life that they have. That's it. And they're willing to give up all kinds of things in order to get that, including, and this is what Uh, And this is not hyperbolic on my part. You read the book and you'll see that Clifton has documented this in terms of their own words. People are willing to give up much of their personal freedom if they are guaranteed those three things. That's the frightening part. That is. I would say that at this juncture, um, I hope people don't come away with the program being too negative, but we just tried to shine a light on some of the things that are in play in what is an increasingly complex world, extremely complex world. And that complex world demands that we try to understand it 
that we try to educate ourselves, that we try to get quality information that allows us to make wise decisions at the polls. And that's what it's going to take for us to keep ourselves on track and keep the experiment moving forward. Any last thoughts from anyone? Well, I know Chris has been very quiet today. I would love to hear uh, some positive news coming out of Chris and and tell us what you uh, learned in your journey to close us out. Well, um, yeah, I'm just back from a history tour of Ireland, my first time to the Republic. And uh, I think a couple of observations from that is that it takes a tremendous amount of um, misgovernment to push uh, people, a general population, to supporting a rebellion. Let's let's call it anything else uh, that you want. Um, it does uh, to the point where I was just finished a book while I was sitting in COVID prison in a Galway hotel room uh, about the so the rebellion rebellion from 1919 to 21 and how. Um, the brutality of the black and tans and indiscriminate violence and murder on the streets uh, was one of the things that prompted the rebellion to succeed. Um, but going back a little bit further to the, the people may remember the 1916 Easter Rising in the middle of World War One in Dublin, and the most Irish people at that time um, still had hope for for a compromise deal with the London government and were appalled at the acts of violence by the rebels in 1916. But the thing that swayed public opinion to decide that the government was no longer legitimate in any way, shape or form was the um, execution of, um, I can't remember the exact number, but about 17 of the leaders of that rebellion and the, the martyrdom, the excessive punishment that was meted out to those men uh, was what completely transformed public opinion. So I just put that out there as we consider our own feelings towards the instigators of the January 6th uprising. Um, we personally might think they should be punished to the full extent of the law, but we have to be judicious as well in how we think about the risk of creating martyrs as well that could uh, transform the cause. However, um, unjustified one might think it to be. So it's just very interesting to see that. And also to learn that I had, um, as, as a British person, to realize that I had relatives who were on the rebel side was quite uh, quite a shocking <laughs> uh, discovery, I have to say. Uh, but anyway, that's the way it was. I'm thinking this is a topic that we could go on for easily another hour, but unfortunately, we don't have the time. That said, thank you all for today. And if anyone out there has an opinion that they would like to share with us, please contact us at info at franklin.tv. That's info at franklin.tv. For Chris Wolf, Nick Remesong, Dr. Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Representative Jeff Roy, uh, I'm Peter J. Thank you for joining us today as we all try to find a way to, if not walk forward, at least stumble forward toward a more perfect union. Thank you for listening. This is Franklin Public Radio.